Hello there and welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're talking about PFL number eight as part of the semifinals of the 2022 playoffs being held on Saturday, the 13th of August with a 12 p.m. Eastern start time. You gotta love the schedule here because 12 p.m. Eastern, you got PFL and then later in the day, you got UFC. So PFL will be the appetizer on Saturday to get you all warmed up for UFC. All right, back to PFL. 12 total bouts in the card. We've got four fights as part of the playoff. Interesting format. We have four bouts here in the prelim card. Then we'll go into a main card. And after the main card, we'll go into a post-liminary structure with another four bouts. I think they should probably just put all that post-lim shit into the prelim stuff, like early prelims. I don't know. Whatever. That's their format. The most exciting fights on the card will be the playoff bouts. We have Rory McDonald versus Magomed Umalatov. Anta Delizia versus Renan Ferreira. Dennis Golsov scoring off against Matthias Shuffle. And then Carlos Leal Miranda against Sada Busi. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time. Give you our picks to win. Talk about betting implications. We appreciate you joining us. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Let's jump into it. Here we go. First fight in the prelim card is going to be a heavyweight clash at 265 pounds between Hatif Moel from Germany and Zamon Bajor from Poland. Bajor is 23-9 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, he's 34 years old, 6'1 in height, so not the tallest of heavyweights. We don't have a reach on him, but having watched him on film, I would say his reach is going to be less than his opponent. He's a bit shorter again as a heavyweight, good build, but not the heaviest of guys. I imagine he doesn't even weigh in at 265, probably weighs in more like 240-ish or so, seems like he doesn't make the full weight. He trades out of art fight. As for Hatif Moel, the German fighter, he goes by Boss. That's an easy name to call him. So the Boss man here is 12 and 4 overall, 5 and 0 in his last five fights, 35 years old, 6 foot 4 in height. I have a 3 inch height advantage with a 74.8 inch reach. He trains out of UFD gym and University of Fighting. Now looking at the votes on Tapology, it appears that Moel is the favorite, getting 81% of the votes, only 19% coming in for Bajor. I'm actually going to go with the Polish fighter. I'm not just trying to be a contrarian. Having watched film, there are some issues with Hatif Moel, which I'll talk about. Look at the fighters individually. Let's talk first about Mr. Hatif Moel. He's from Germany. No amateur record. He went professional 2015. He lost his pro debut via knockout around two TKO. He started his career four and four overall. Not the kind of start to a career that you would like to see for someone who would be an ascending mixed martial artist. He fought in KSW, Octagon, and a few of the smaller promotions prior to this opportunity with the PFL. This will be his PFL debut. His last fight was earlier this year. He had a win by TKO in round two over Karrison Leal. Karrison Leal is a middling average fighter, hasn't fought in the top level promotion, currently sitting at six and four, just above 500. He also beat a guy named Cornell Zoptica. That was late last year. He also beat Cornell Zoptica. That was 2012. He also beat Cornell Zoptica. That was 2021, just last year, but in December, so late last year, a round one KO win. And so he's on a nice winning streak. When you look at the games, he, when you look at the names he's beating, it's guys that are, you know, average level fighters, nothing that's you know too serious. Now, some ones I want to highlight. He fought Marcin Wojcik, 2018. He lost via retirement. Like, what do you mean retirement? Like giving up, like can't fight anymore. Marcin is 15 and eight overall, a pretty good fighter, you know, pretty good. But what happens in that fight is that our boy Hatif Moel just gasses out completely. Like they're fighting, it's a close fight. And at one point, he comes out of the corner or cage or wherever his corner's at to start the next round. He's huffing and puffing, can't get himself together. Referee calls it off. The prior round, he was huffing and puffing, bending over during the fight. Showed just absolutely terrible cardio. And I want, I'll come back around to this issue of retirement or quitting in a fight. He also fought Nico Negamorano, the UFC fighter who just recently had a nice win. He did lose to him, a round one TKO loss 2017. And then he fought Darko Stojic, 2015, around two TKO. Now, Darko currently fights in KSW. He had a brief run in the UFC. 
He lost by decision to Jamal Hill, lost by decision to Kennedy Njuku, and had a decision loss to Devin Clark, and then had a round one KO win over Jeremy Kimball. So Darko Stojic, 2015, about seven years ago, decent level, high-level opponent. Now, the things to like about Hatif Moel, what's to like about his game? He's on an eight-fight winning streak. You do like that. Maybe he's kind of shoring up his game, improving his cardio. He hasn't lost a fight in over four years. He has fought pretty good competition. I don't want to sit here and say he's got a bad record, a weak typology. He does. He's actually fought some guys at a UFC level. He's an active fighter. This will be the second time he's fighting this year. He's got a solid wrestling game, especially when he doesn't have his gas tank depleted. His wrestling is pretty good. For a big guy like 6'3", 6'4", he could level change, get nice, nice takedowns. And if he gets on top of you, obviously it's not going to be good for you uh, if that man, big man's on top, right? Now, my concerns for him, his recent competition has been very low level. So the nice eight-fight winning streak, yeah, that looks good. But then you look closer to these opponents, and they're guys that are just kind of barely hanging on to their career. He has not displayed good cardio. I, I want to underline this point. People that have bad cardio issues, especially when it's not one fight, it's multiple fights, it just, man, it's hard to put money behind that. It's hard to get behind that. It's hard to predict that person's going to win a fight. Of course he has a path to victory. Of course he has power. This is the heavyweight division. We get anywhere near round two with this guy, oh, man, I, I just don't see how he's able to keep it together. And I think at that point, the Polish fighter will probably pick him apart. He's had a hard time with lower leg kicks in the past. This guy stands very heavy. If you kick him in the legs, he doesn't check it. He just tries to back up. No side-to-side -side movement, just like back up. That backing up shit, that kind of doesn't work over the course of time. So if you go after his legs and you try to kick his legs, they're not very big. They're just normal-sized legs. He'll have a problem with that, doesn't do well, and his footwork is you know, not very quick. If he can't crack his opponent, okay, if he can't land a big shot right early on in the fight or get some dominant wrestling time, He's then sort of forced to fight in a way that's not his style. That's long-term, more volume, cardio is required. That's not his thing. He's coming in there to get a finish in round one, maybe round two. And if you look at his typology, that's he's usually his path to victory. So from that standpoint, he could be a bit one-dimensional. It's landing a big shot, get some ground control. If he can't get either one, he's forced to stand in feet. You defend the takedown. You take a few shots from him. He's kind of left with, you know, uh, at that point, not enough tools to possibly get a win, especially on the scorecards. He slows down at times. And when I say slows down, he'll have a nice flurry. Cardio kicks in. like It's like boom, hitting a reset button. Boom, resetting. And that little cardio dump, he'll take a bunch of punches. Pretty good chin, yes, but he'll take punches in that meantime. I mean, I can't say it enough. If you look at some of the film on this guy, I think you'll conclude the same thing I'm saying. He does have power. It's there. Yes, he's a legit heavyweight, legit size. But the cardio is a major issue. It's a discipline factor. And if you watch him on film once or twice in those scenarios, you'll feel the same way I do, which is I, I can't get behind this guy. Now, the last thing I want to talk about in terms of my concerns for him or his weaknesses, the questionable losses and the odd endings to fights. All right. So twice in fights, it's either been stopped because like he retired or his corner through the towel in. You know, one time it happens twice. Is that a sign that this guy lacks the heart, uh, doesn't want to continue fighting? He has another loss where he illegally kicks somebody. Now that loss, I don't hold that as against him as much. It's an illegal kick. It could happen. So he's got that weird loss there. He did some disrespectful ass shit in his fight against James Sweeney. I would encourage you to just fast forward to that fight. The fight is back and forth. It's somewhat close. They both have their moments. As the fight ends, he's on top of James Sweeney. Referee comes in and says, okay, the fight is over. The last bell has rang. We're going to the scorecards. And he kind of does some, like, on top of James Sweeney disrespectful shit. And the whole thing almost ends up in a melee. Both, both you know, sides 
coaches come out and the you know the ring gets filled with people. No one's swinging, but it gets a little bit hectic. And he just acts like a bit of an ass, for lack of better words. I get it. You just won. Who knows what was being said? But James Sweeney, just based upon body language and the way he was even conducting himself after the fight, came off to me as like trying to be um, like the respectful mixed martial artist. And even at the end, he's the one who came, you know came over and approached. Uh, our boy here, Hatif Moel, and tried to like say, "Hey, listen, let's let bygones be bygones." And Hatif Moel, at that point, you know, embraced him and said, "Whatever." I'm just saying, I got questions about character, you know, fighter discipline, ring generalship, uh, just a bunch of flags all over the place. And then recently, this eight fight winning streak is going to distract the casual better, and they're going to say, "Oh, <clears throat> he's bigger. He's six foot four. Uh, you know, he's fought some pretty, you know, pretty good guys over the course of his career. He just eight wins in a row. He, you know, he's more athletic. I mean, heck, even just the skin tone thing, right? He's got a little more tan. He hasn't fought anybody of substance. He's got cardio issues. He's very one dimensional, and he's fighting a guy who I'm going to talk about in a second, who's a bit of a veteran. Let's talk about Zimun Bajor from Poland. He's one and zero as an amateur. So not much of an amateur record. He went professional in 2010, began his career with a five-fight winning streak, and this will mark his PFL debut as well. I'm going to speculate on the side. I believe the fights that are going on now that are not part of the playoffs are early auditions for the 2023 PFL roster. They said that about some of the prelim fights and I think post-limb fights for last week in event. I imagine it's the same scenario for these guys. They're coming into audition secure a spot for next year's roster. So for both fighters, there's a PFL debut and a chance to make the roster for next year. Back to Simone Bajor. His last fight was against Bartos Suswich. That was 2021, last year, around two submission win. Bartos was only 3-0 at the time. There's a red flag. Here's a guy who's, you know, almost 30 total fights, mixed martial arts fights. Why are you fighting someone who's 3-0? You know, that's where it's like management's coming in. There's side backdoor shit going on to keep this guy fighting people that he could definitely beat. Padding of the records. We talk about that a lot. His prior fight, Ednaldo Oliveira, 2021, a round three TKO win. Oliveira is a bit of a journeyman. That's a nice way of putting it. But he's three and six in his last nine fights. The guy's simply not winning. Once again, Bajor's getting an opponent here that, you know, it's a good setup. It's a lob. You know, like he's the guy finishing off the alley-oop. It's not a hard job. The guy throwing the alley-oop has got a little bit more work, but the six foot nine, six foot eleven, power forward, center, whatever, catching that alley-oop and just ducking it, that's the easy work. They're giving him alley-oops. He dominates that fight. He looks amazing. He displayed great cardio, top control, grinded this guy out for almost three full rounds, gets a finish in the last round. So it looks good on paper. It looked good optically. Let's go back a little further. Two years. Ole Thompson or Ole Thompson, 2020, round one TKO loss in 23 seconds. Whew, I'm going to take a deep breath. This fight is seared in my head because if Hatif Moel cracks Zamon Bajor the right way, Hatif Moel will win. We just watched last UFC event, the Dana White Tennis Series um, show, the Ultimate Fighter show, excuse me, had the finalists there, heavyweight bout, Usman's brother, Mohamed Usman squares off against uh, Pagu Sagu. I forgot how to say this guy's name. And everyone pretty much had this guy. And I had him too. I had him in a bunch of parlays. It crushed my night, sent me into a negative weekend. What ends up happening? It's a heavyweight bout. One punch lands that changes the entire fight, and that's it. We have to always remind ourselves in heavyweight fights, that is the ultimate neutralizer of all the film study. Everything I'm saying to you right now goes out the window if... 
this guy Hatif Moel lands that one punch. And if you watch this fight against Ole Thompson in 2020, it was one simple punch. It wasn't the hardest punch in the world. And man, it just sets the lights out on Bajor. Bajor looks, com it's not like it was a second punch. One punch, that was it, 23 seconds. So putting that in context, you've gotta be concerned about durability and chin. This is not his fifth fight. It's not his sixth fight. This will be like his 32nd, 33rd fight. The guy's been around for a while. Usually at the end of your career with guys who fought that long, one of the signs is the chin. The chin tends to go. So that was two years ago. Been a while. Fought some fights since then. Took some hard hits. But we want to put that out there. He's also fought some guys we might recognize. Marcin Tybura, 2012. Split decision loss. Tybura is currently in the UFC. He fought Dennis Golsov, 2013, a long time ago. About eight years ago. Had a round two TKO loss. Golsov is currently in the PFL playoffs. He also fought Tudoris Oxalis. Now that guy went 0-2 this year in the PFL. Good looking physically, but doesn't have, seem to have MA skills. That was 2016. He had a decision win over him in rising promotion. And then one more guy to talk about. Valentin Moldovsky, who's currently 11-2 and in the PFL, looking very good. He lost him by decision. So what does that tell me, that topology of names? He's fought some good competition. He's gone to close decisions against guys that are even UFC level. That says a lot. And he's not too old. He's actually the guy who's a year younger. What's to like about the Polish fighter? He's fought some very good competition. We just mentioned that, I'm being repetitive, but you get the point. Better competition than I think his opponent here, Hatif Moel. That's my point. He pushes a very aggressive pace. He's a forward moving fighter. Hatif Moel, he'll let you drive the car. He'll sit in the passenger seat. He'll let you drive. And he'll hope to counter you. And as he gets more tired, at that point, he'll let you drive him wherever the hell you want to go, including to the ground, wherever you want to take the fight. Initially, I could see him holding his ground a little bit. But Simone Bajor has one speed. He doesn't have any reverse in this little buggy of his. It's fast forward, straight forward, all day, every day. He's pushing the pace. He takes control of the pace of the fight. And the guy has cardio for days. Oh, did I mention before that Hatif Moel doesn't have good cardio? <laughs> like, if you could program Zamone Bajor to how you win this fight, it's simply do not trade with this guy in round one. Don't do it. The minute you start seeing him flail away, duck, take a single leg, do anything. Just fall to your back. Pull guard. Anything. Do not trade. Do not try to counter with him. Don't take any chances. Because that is the only path to victory for Hatif Moel is a win in round one, early round two, by TKO. Only path to victory. Remember I said that. So if he does it, I'm still going to be right. Because I'm picking the Polish fighter here, Zimon, by Jordan win. I think, again, he gets through round one. And by the end of round one, mind you, you will see by the three and a half minute mark of round one, Hatif Moa will start showing the signs of cardio. Especially if our boy Zimon by Jordan takes him down, which he should do because he's got a good takedown offense. So what's the like here about Zamon Bajor. He's got good strength of schedule, aggressive forward fighting, runs the pace, cardio for days. My concerns for him, the chin issue, if it's a chin issue, it's just one moment there, but it looked pretty bad. And this guy had teeth Moel. He hits like, he looks like he hits you the way that a horse would kick you. It looks like you're getting donkey kicked when this guy hits you. Super strong, very big, built like an NFL linebacker. Do one more criticism of our buddy here, Simon Bajor. He's come up short against some of the better fighters, lost to guys like Valentin Moldovsky, Dennis Goldsoff, Marcin Tiboro. 
guys tended to be just a little step up above where he's at. In conclusion, I do think the Polish fighter has enough veteran savvy to know that he's not supposed to stand and bang with this guy. At least I hope he knows that at this point. If it gets to a point where things get a little testy, he's going to try to find survival tactics, mix it up, look to clinch. If he does that, clean, easy path to victory at plus 150 right now. It's sitting on DraftKings. Great value. I'm going to have to bet it straight up. I'm not sure if I could parlay this, but I do like Zimone Bajor at plus 150. I like him by TKO or submission because I think Hatif Moel just simply cannot finish. If you like Hatif Moel, take him by TKO. Those props are not available. But again, a finishing prop by Zomon Bajor. The fight knock with a distance prop also looks good. And then Hatif Moel, his path to victory, not submission. That's not his thing. It's just donkey punching somebody, knocking them out. And Zomon Bajor has been knocked out. But give me some of the Polish fighter, plus 150. I'm taking Zomon Bajor. That's your breakdown, guys. Moving up the card, we've got a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Chris Mixon from the United States and Christian Stigenberg from Sweden. Stigenberg is 3-1 overall. Not much experience. He hails from Sweden, as we mentioned before, but not much information on him. We don't have a reach number on him. We have a height listed on him. We had to find that through a prior fight. He's actually 6'3 in height. He's 30 years old. As for the age on Chris Mixon, we don't have that either. Very typical of fights where we have two fighters that don't have much experience. Lower level. PFL is not the lowest level promotion, but it's not quite the UFC or even Bellator. Do the best we can to patch together some pieces of these two fighters. There is plenty of film on them. That does help us in the breakdown. I'm going to guesstimate that Chris Mixon is in the age range of somewhere in his mid to late 20s. Maybe a year or two younger than Christian Stegenberg, who's at 30 years old. For Chris Mixon, based out of Palm Coast, Florida, six foot one in height, so about two inches shorter than Christian Stegenberg. He trains out of Pete White Boxing MMA, and Christian Stegenberg trains out of Sodder's Fight Gym Galv. As for the numbers coming in on Tapology, 90% coming in for Mixon. I get it. Mixon was actually the original fighter to be in this fight. Uh, Christian Stigenberg is the replacement. Now, not a late last minute replacement. From that standpoint, gives you the idea that maybe Chris Mixon is more of the fighter who's prepared for this fight, has done a full camp. But Stigenberg or Stigenberg, he is a wily character. He's very long, very rangy, reminds me a little bit of like Sean Woodson in UFC. He'll have the height and reach advantage in this matchup. We don't know how much of a reach advantage because we're just speculating. But when you watch him in film, the dude is very gangly and very long. Looking first at Mr. Dixon. He had a 6-0 amateur career. He went professional in 2020. He fought in game-bred fighting championships. That's the bare-knuckle fighting organization that's run by Mr. Jorge Masvidal. He also fought in Empire FC. His last fight, Nathan Pierce. That was this year. Round 2, TKO win. He was a minus 220 favorite. He looked dominant in the fight. All things, though, in perspective, Pierce is 3-3 three three overall and just didn't look very good in the fight. Pierce didn't look like he belonged. He got pieced up pretty quickly, pretty easily, and quite frankly, didn't look like an opponent that belonged at that level. So it's a win, a win is a win, but not against a good opponent. Moving back to 2020, submission win in 2020 in his pro debut versus Cedric Johnson. Wow, that fight was interesting. That fight doesn't do it justice when you look at it on Tapology because he gets knocked down in round one and in round two. Round two, it's a left hook that knocks him down. Not much of a left hook. Maybe he was still feeling the effects of the round one knockdown. Round one was more of a straight shot. It was pretty lethal. He fell back in his back. But the thing is, he does a great job surviving. For a younger fighter, great survival skills, goes into grappling mode, quickly gets his wits back about him, and he's back in the fight. I don't like that he gets knocked down so quickly. It seems like it's you know part of his... Reminds me of who's the guy who gets knocked down a lot? The blonde guy who just fought recently. Ugh, he fought Terrence McKinney two fights ago. 
It's not coming to my mind. But the guy who gets chin checked all the time, but he can keep going. That's the kind of the fighting style that I believe that Chris Mixon has, which is a little dangerous, of course. Nonetheless, he comes back in the fight because after he gets knocked down in round two, Cedric Johnson jumps on top of him, goes into his guard. And then from there, Chris Mixon is able to swoop up a Kimura. Nice comeback win. He had to have a finish at that point. It's into round two. He'd been knocked down in round two and definitely lost round one. So there's a lot of things to like about that fight, but you know, Cedric Johnson is one in six, I believe, or one in five in his career. Putting that in perspective, again, he almost lost to that guy and got clipped definitely twice in that fight. Now, what do I like about Chris Mixon? Very high finish rate as a professional and an amateur. He finished all of his mixed martial arts fights as a pro so far. So three and zero, three fights, three finishes. Of his six amateur wins, five of those by finish. He's got a very nice left hook. Matter of fact, it's something you'd kind of pick up on real quickly. He's very long and rangy. Imagine those guys very long arms. He can quickly get that left hook in there. It could do some damage. I think he's sneaky powerful with his punches. He's got that Nate Diaz effect where it doesn't look very powerful, but when he wants to turn it on, he's got some power behind it. And then, of course, we've seen him get dropped. We've seen him get hurt. If you watch the film against Cedric Johnson, he is in some dark waters there or deep waters or whatever kind of water. There's blood in the water, however you want to put it. He is up against it and does a great job of surviving that. Now, what are my concerns for Chris Mixon? He's getting clipped, he's getting dropped multiple times in one fight. It's not against a UFC level opponent, it was against a guy who's one in six. That's gotta raise some flags. You gotta be a little concerned about that. In this matchup, he's fighting a guy who doesn't mind throwing the hands, <laughs> put it that way. A guy who doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. I mean, in the clinch, those tall guys have good knees. Moneyline's not accurate here. We'll talk more about that at the end, but it's not accurate. I'm just looking at my notes here. He does not have a win yet over an opponent with a winning record. The combined record of the people that he's beaten so far as a professional, his three wins, is five wins and 10 losses. It's not the worst thing in the world. And of course, at the beginning of your career, you're not gonna be fighting guys who are like 20 and 0. I get it. <clears throat> but he hasn't truly been tested in terms of having good opponents. He's fought some guys that are very average. Now let's talk about Christian Stigenberg. I feel like it's Stigenberg, but Correct me if I'm wrong in the comment section. I apologize. As for Christian, he's from Sweden. He went six and four as an amateur, which included him going on a three-fight losing streak at one point or losing three out of four matches. That's always a red flag for me. As an amateur, you know, I get it. You're learning. You're up and down. But amateur, underlying the word amateur, the more talented guys tend to do well in the amateur ranks. Now, granted, maybe he was talented but didn't have the whole skill set. Maybe run into a few good guys, whatever, had a few bad calls. I get it. But losing three out of four fights in an amateur level, that just to me suggests there's there's some holes in the game, at least from the initial standpoint. Maybe he's patched up some of those holes. He fought in Fight Club Rush prior to this opportunity with DPFL. He's in a he's a replacement for this fight. We mentioned before. So he's coming in here as not the original guy. He's the backup chick. He's the side girl, if that makes any sense. Doesn't always mean that the person's not ready. Just a little history for you guys how this works when you are getting a last minute opponent to fill in for someone there's a list basically there's a prepared list ahead of time where if we have a call out in this fight or that fight there's a short list of two or three guys we're going to call that's at least what the bigger promotions have going on granted pfl isn't the biggest but i imagine they still have a short list so he knew he could get a phone call he knew if there was somebody who popped out and there's been a lot of call outs the last few weeks in the pfl there's been injuries whatever else so he kind of knew all that said, he still wasn't the guy initially. He wasn't their main pick. Maybe he was part of an interview process and whatever, didn't make the cut. So, you know, just it's don't look at it like he's a last minute replacement. He's a replacement, but he's not last minute. He fights out of a very tall right-handed stance, like a right-handed boxing stance, light in his feet. He's very long as it is, and that tall stance usually makes him look a lot taller than a guy who's maybe using a little more of a low profile. 
Now, his recent opponents, he fought Theodore Berggren earlier this year. Decision win. That was his last fight. Berggren is 2-1 overall, like 22 years old, very young prospect, pretty good fighter. It was even early on. Early on in round one, fairly even fight. Right at the end of round one, you see Christian do something very smart. He pushes the pace, lands a nice few combinations, and basically, quote-unquote, steals the round. I hate that term, steals the round. No one's stealing anything. They earn the round. But Christian earns himself the round at the end of the round by picking up the pace, putting the pressure on, and gets himself a unanimous decision. It was a quality win in that he goes the full three rounds, shows good cardio, did a good job of defending takedowns against a shorter guy who was looking to wrestle him, looking to clinch it up. Again, though, his opponent was like, you know, three total fights in his career at that point, didn't have much experience. From that standpoint, it wasn't an opponent that he can really get much of a test. He fought Nico Skonback, 2021 decision loss. Skonback is 5-2 and two overall and looking to be a pretty good prospect. But there you go as an example. There was someone who had some more experience, who was more of a test, and he didn't pass that test. So you don't like that. What's to like about the way Christian Steinberg fights? He's very durable. Never been finished in his entire career. We're talking about 14 fights between his amateur career and pro career. So he's got a pretty good chin. And the way he fights, I'll tell you, his hands aren't very up there. His hands are pretty low. He does get hit every now and then, a little too much for my liking. So his chin has held up so far. He will have a height advantage in this matchup along with a reach advantage. He already fights with a very tall, long demeanor. That could play a big part. If this fight gets into round two, round three, where we get a chance to see these guys going back and forth at range, I've got to imagine that plays into the game plan of Christian Stegenberg. He's also a very active fighter. This will be his second fight this year. He fought three times last year, and he fought two times in 2020. Now imagine that. This guy's fought, what, five, six? This will be his seventh fight the last three years. Throughout the entire COVID situation, the guy's been very, very active. You got to like that. He's got good feet, light in his feet. Early on in the fight, he's a little more light in the feet. He's at the boxer's bounce, if I can call it that. As the fight goes on, everyone slows down. You notice him slowing down a bit. But when he's got his cardio intact and he's feeling good, he's light in the feet, staying very tall. If his feet were a little wider, I'd call it like a karate stance, almost like a Steve Thompson type of a, a shuffle, but it's more of a boxing stance. His feet are closer together and he's standing very tall. He has a very long frame. You'll notice it right away. He's very tall, long, and gangly. You can mistake that for not having a lot of power. He's got good leverage, good movement. If he sticks and moves, this will be his fight in the feet. I've said that like 10 times. I just want to emphasize that. He does a variety of kicks inside, outside leg kicks, into the body. There are some head kicks in there too, but most of the kicking damage is done to the body inside kicks and outside kicks. What are my concerns here for Christian? Well, number one, he's displayed limited finishing ability. He starts to wonder now about the punching power and he's already built in a very thin, long demeanor. I could see him cracking Chris Mixon, knocking him down, Chris Mixon surviving for two reasons. One, Chris Mixon, that's what he does. He gets knocked down. And number two, I don't know. I'm not sold on the punching power of Christian Stigenberg. I don't think that he's got the ability to like knock this guy out completely. Maybe knock him down, but his finishing ability, it doesn't show on paper. He doesn't have many finishes. He's also faced very limited competition thus far. So again, low finish rate and low level of competition. That means he probably doesn't have a lot of punching power. He's very tall. He fights tall. What does that mean? If he faces a wrestler, he leaves himself vulnerable. Now against Chris Mixon, Mixon will look for some clinching at times. He will get some takedowns. He has that in his arsenal. I mean, he should do it. That'll be the smart thing to do. But if you force Chris Mixon to find the feet, he'll jump into that mode of like street fighting, brawling. He'll fight. You back him into a corner. He'll forget about the takedowns and just start fighting. It'll be the responsibility of Chris Stigenberg to force him to do that because if Stigenberg's not careful, he goes swinging. He's standing up tall. He will be an easy target to take down. 
Beyond this fight, the next opponent's for Christian Stegenberg. That's going to be his kryptonite, the takedowns. He does a good job of defending them when he gets himself into a good defensive position. But damn, he stands so tall, he's right there for the taking. <clears throat> and lastly, hold his hands very low. They're never up at guard. They're kind of somewhere in this area. And I like the fact that he's so smooth and comfortable. There's never a blocking of any punches. Now, some guys will tell you, well, blocking punches is not a good idea. You're blocking them with your bare hand, your fingers. You're going to still absorb that. It's better to avoid them. Uh, yeah, I agree with some of that. And he tries to duck everything with his head. It's all about head movement. You know, at the end of the day, you're kind of playing with fire. <laughs> okay, he's a long guy. I know he's got the range benefit. He can come in and out a little bit faster than his opponent, usually because he's got that range benefit. Just think that he's quite hittable. We don't have stats on how hittable he is, but if he was a UFC fighter, I would say that his striking ratio would probably be sitting around negative because he takes a lot of punches. Good volume, though. Good output. We watched a handful of fights to bring down this film. We watched Maxine versus Johnson, 2020. Mixon, I'm sorry, I said Maxon. Mixon versus Johnson, 2020. Mixon versus Pierce from this year. Mixon versus Cassiano from 2019. That was an amateur bout. And Stigenberg versus Bergen, 2022, this year. In conclusion, I like Chris Mixon via decision. I think we get ourselves a really good fight. It goes back and forth. I see Chris Mixon going to some deep waters at times, maybe even getting a little bit hurt. But I don't think, again, Christian Stickenberg has the power to take him out. And over the course of three full rounds, I see Chris Mixon having those highlight moments, doing just enough, being the more prepared fighter for this opportunity where you have Stickenberg coming in as more of a replacement. So I like Chris Mixon. I do not like the money line. And for that reason alone, no way I'm playing straight up. Minus 300, no way. That's crazy. Matter of fact, if you have to bet the fight on my line, you've got to take a look here at Stigenberg. He's a live underdog. They're giving it to you my big plus money. He's currently sitting at plus 240. Yeah, there's a lot of value there. And I might just, you know, take a few shots of vodka and just put like 25 bucks in it. I'm not sure. No parlaying here either, because I'm telling you with Chris Mixon, there's a lot of ways this fight gets ugly and close. I mean, heck, could Christian Stigenberg just knock him down? in two different rounds and then it's just close rounds but those knockdowns get enough for him to win the round we still hit the scorecards i just see this fight being much closer than the minus 300 range so that money line is off if i wanted to look at some props i look at the fight going over a round and a half i just see this fight being quite close a lot of variables still a lot of blind spots i spent too much time talking about this fight as it is to wrap things up and put a bow in it i'm gonna take chris mixon to win money line has completely turned me off in this fight Good luck with this one, guys. If you know anything I don't know, have any ideas, hit me up in the comments section. Thanks for stopping by. Please like and subscribe. And we're on to the next one. Moving up the card, we've got a light heavyweight bout, 205 pounds, between Mohamed Fakhradin. I like saying that last name, Fakhradin. I imagine him being in the gym, training and like kicking the bag really hard, and his coach is like, Fakhradin. <laughs> Back to this breakdown. Mohamed Fakhradin versus Marcin Wojcik from Poland. Fakhradin hails from Lebanon. Wojcik goes by the Giant. He's 15 and 8 overall. 4 1 his last five fights. Based out of Pila, Poland. 32 years old, 11 months. So about to be 33. 6 foot 1 in height with a 72 inch reach. And he trains out of Ankos and May Poznan and also GTD team. As for Mohamed Fakhradin, who goes by the latest, like the newest, new to the scene, 15 and 4 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. He's the favorite here at minus 170. You can get Marcin Wojcik on the other side at plus 140. Again, Mohamed hails out of Lebanon, 38 years old. We have no height number on him and no reach number. Having watched film, I don't believe he's quite six foot one. But then again, I'm not even sure that I'm not sure that Marcin Wojcik is six foot one. I think these guys are comparable in height. There'll be maybe an inch between the two of them in terms of their height. In terms of reach, 
Muhammad doesn't have the longest arms, but he's more of a kicking guy anyway, so he'll make up for it with his leg kicks. So when it comes to reach, not think it's going to be much of a factor. Now, looking at the public votes on Tapology, it appears that Fakhradin is currently getting the most votes at 74% compared to 26% coming in for the Polish fighter. I agree. I like him quite a bit. I will admit out the gates, these guys both have issues with durability. Okay, so if you're wondering why, hey, how could you be in this one guy? I do admit this fight probably doesn't go the distance. That's most likely the best bet is the distance prop, looking at whether it goes over two and a half or under. I'm saying under two and a half rounds. I'm saying the fight doesn't go the distance. I think Fakhradin comes out on top and gets to finish here by TKO. I like that prop. That's the shortened version of this breakdown. Now for a little more of an in-depth knowledge on these two fighters, let's talk about Mr. Mohamed Fakhradin first. He went 2-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2012. So been a pro about 10 years. He has fought in UAE Warriors and Brave CF, both good organizations. He doesn't really stay in one stance more time than the other. He'll switch stances back and forth. A lot of power in both hands and both legs. The switching stances, I'll put it this way. When you're fighting a guy who does that, it's just that extra wrinkle to adjust for instead of facing someone who just stays in one stance, whether it's left hand or right hand. His most recent opponents, he fought Mohamed Said Mylam. If I am butchering any of these names, forgive me, I apologize. Now, these guys fought back-to-back, -back, so there was a first fight. That fight happened in August of last year, about a year ago. The fight goes down, and our boy here, Fakhradin, gets knocked out TKO round one with four minutes and 20 seconds to go on the clock in round one by Mohamed Said Mylim. That's originally what happens. After further review, they decide that there was some illegal blows by Mylim, and then because of those legal blows, that led to the TKO, and so it's ruled a no contest. They run it back in March of this year in that rematch. Now, Mylam loses by a round two TKO. So we got a win here for Fakhradin. Nice rematch. Obviously gets the revenge, gets the knockout in round two. His prior opponent, Daniel Pereira. That was in 2020, September 2020. And he fights Pereira, wins the fight by a round four TKO. It was close for most of the fight. What ends up happening is he sort of just wears down Pereira. At some point, Pereira's like, this guy is not going down. Shows his toughness, shows his durability, lands some hard shots, backs him up, and knocks him out in round four. The leg kicks by this guy, Mohamed Fakhradin, which we'll talk about in a second, that is probably his most lethal weapon. I'm not leg kicks, his kicking game in general, to the body, to the head. He throws with a lot of power. And it's not like he throws with a lot of power and then fatigues over the course of the fight. He just throws a lot of power. He's just nasty like that. He reminds me of a mixture of a few fighters. And in some senses, I think he reminds me of almost like Jorge Masvidal. In other ways, he's like more athletic. He's got some power. He gets reckless sometimes, doesn't mind getting cracked. And again, that's probably his biggest kryptonite. He gets cracked every now and then. One more prior opponent to talk about, Azamat Murzakonov, 2019, a round one TKO loss. Now, Azamat is currently in the UFC, so Azamat is not a bad loss to have in his resume. What do I like about Muhammad? He throws and kicks with a bunch of power. He's got a very high output. And usually guys who throw with a lot of power, there's like a diminishing output. Not with him. Excellent gas tank. Goes for all three rounds. His opponent has to get used to the discomfort. He's going to push his opponent back and make them uncomfortable. He's coming forward. He's not going to give you much time to adjust. If he senses you're hurt, if he smells the blood in the water, he's coming after you. That sounds easier said than done. How many recent fighters have we watched or people that maybe you were holding a ticket on? They're fighting and you're like, Jesus, dude, the guy's hurt or the gal's hurt. Go after them. Here's your opportunity. You're down in the fight. What are you waiting for? We have coaches imploring their fighter, please, you know, you got to get the finish. You've got to go forward. This guy here, Fakhradin, doesn't need that speech. He doesn't need the Rocky speech. He's coming forward. He wants to finish the fight. That's just in his ilk. That's part of his DNA. He has a wide range of powerful kicks to the calf, to the thigh area, body, front kicks, and obviously the head kicks. He's hurt people seriously with all those variety of kicks. He'll do that to Marcy Wojcik. It's just part of his DNA. His leg kicking game, body kicking game, it's it's vicious. You'll, you'll see it when he fights on Saturday. It's vicious. Now, looking at the weaknesses that I have here for Mohamed Fakhradin, 
He is 38 years old. 38 is not the prime age for light heavyweights. Some other concerns I have, he can get a little bit off balance at times. Off balance because he's willing to brawl. He'll throw with a lot of heat. His striking can get also very undisciplined. I like his striking. Again, I compared him to Jorge Masvid all the times. But if he gets tired or feels like the fight's getting into a brawl, he'll start throwing reckless abandon, chins wide open, looping punches. He's off balance. I wish he would curb that in. But at this point now, at 30 years old, it's not like he's going to be changing that. That's just part of who he is. His hands are never up in guard. Okay, there's some kind of like around here. He throws some kicks, they drop even lower. Dropping your hands when you kick, it seems to be customary. You know, you're leaning your head back, you feel like you have some range, but his hands are low as it is. He drops them even lower when he kicks. Those are all just prime areas for an opponent to attack him at. He does push a heavy pace. I mean, he's pushing his guy back at times. You wonder at 38, can he keep doing that? Will he have that? Cardio is a weapon for some fighters. It's been a weapon for him. Does that weapon diminish now at 38? Has he had the same kind of a training camp? Is he hitting the streets and running and doing the road work he needs to do at this age? He may also have some durability concerns. So for example, in all four of his pro losses, those were losses where he got finished in those fights. Three times by TKO, one time by submission. I believe if he loses this fight, he gets finished. And that's why I talked about that prop. I think the, I think the finishing prop, either way, the fight not going the distance, is probably your best bet in this fight. Because both guys have finishing power. Both guys have a lot of heart. I mean, straight men right here. Nobody's going to back down. They're going to go for it for three full rounds. And someone's going to pay the price. It could very well be our boy Fakhradin. Though I think he does have a slight edge in the finishing power department. Let's talk about the Polish fighter. Marcin Wojcik from Poland. No amateur record. Went pro 2007. So he's been a pro for about 15 years. Quite the veteran. He began his career one in three. How about that? Now he turned things around from then. I love that phrase. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. He's fought in KSW and Cage Warriors. His most recent opponents, he fought Scott Awesome. Oscom? I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. That wasn't his most recent opponent, but I'm mentioning him because I watched that fight. So 2018, he fought Scott Oscom. Round one KO loss. He got buckled from a body kick. If you watch this fight, it's very short, so you don't have to commit much time to it. He gets hit in the body like a kidney shot. Really bad. He buckles over as he's coming to the ground. Now Scott Oscom comes in and lands the perfect kind of uppercut hook shots and knocks out Scott Oscom. <laughs> So it's bad enough you're, you're keeled over from a kidney shot. The ref is about to come in and stop it. Not a great look. And we'll talk more about his durability as we break down his profile. Another fight to talk about, Tomas Narcon, 2017 round one submission loss. What I don't like about this loss, look at the time. Four minutes and 59 seconds on the clock. Yeah, you know what that means. That means that he tapped out with literally one second to go in the round. Don't love that. If you look back at it, in my opinion, honestly, it appeared as if he wasn't trying his best to get out of that scenario. Maybe he was fatigued, but he wasn't trying his best to get out of the submission attempt. And then I thought he had an opportunity to hold on at least for one more second, because once the submission was let go, it wasn't as if he was like woozy or like, oh my God, my knee, or it was, you know, it was a choke of the neck and he wasn't asleep either. How many fighters actually go to sleep? Just putting that out there. I didn't, I didn't love the way that fight ended. Granted, it was 2017, five years ago. Now, Mikhail Olesheshik, who just fought the other day and messed up Sam Alvey and sent Sam Alvey packing, he fought Mikhail Olesheshik in 2014, got a win in round one via KO. He knocked him out. That is by far the most impressive win on the topology of Marcin Wojcik. Now, what do I like about the Polish fighter? He's fought a good strength of schedule. We mentioned before, again, he's fought guys that are UFC level. He's got very good cardio and pushes a very high pace. I love that. I like fighters who go forward, who don't rest too much between action, low fighter output, poor cardio, durability. These are all the red flags. If a fighter has two of those three, 
getting off the ship. There's durability issues with Marcin Wojcik, but there's no lack of heart, no lack of going forward, no lack of volume, no lack of pressure and pace. Both guys have that, which is why I'm also thinking, again, the fight does not go the full distance. These guys are training for three rounds, but someone's going to get cracked. Now, as for my concerns for Marcin Wojcik, durability concerns. He's been finished in the first two rounds in four of his last nine fights. He does have punching power. The technique is lacking, though. There's a lot of lunging, and he doesn't throw combinations. So it's like a one big punch. His boxing technique, not the greatest. In conclusion, I think this fight's going to be a war. They're going to go at it. The edge I'm giving to Fakhradin is because of two things. I think he has the more finishing ability, a slight edge in terms of punching power, hitting power. And I think Wojcik, he's a little more chinny than Fakhradin. They're both going to crack each other. Whoever hits each other harder first probably gets the win. But I like Fakhradin. I think he's going to have a little more volume, pressure, and pace. And I've seen Wojcik get a little tired, too. He's shown some signs that if you pressure him and you put him backwards, he will have a prop. The props I like for this fight, we mentioned the one before. I'll mention it again. The fight not in the distance. That prop is not out yet. Hopefully, it's not too chalky. I will play in some parlays. There's no way this fight goes to full three rounds. And then if you want to look at a specific prop for a fighter, I like Fakhradin by TKO. Again, that prop is not out yet, but when it does come out, we'll take a gander at it and see if it's something we want to play. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Again, we like Mohamed Fakhradin, the 38-year-old veteran, to win this fight by a TKO. Next up in the prelim card is going to be a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between Josh O'Connor, who hails from Wales, so he'll be the hometown kid this event's being held in Wales, versus Emran Zakizada. Zakizada is from Afghanistan, but he flies the Norwegian flag. Emran is 2-1 overall. These guys are both very little experienced. Josh O'Connor is 1-0. Right now, the money line has O'Connor sitting around minus... 300 he was at minus 300 dropped down to now minus 285 you can get Emma on the other side at plus 240 so there's a big favorite there on josh o'connor who is only one and oh i think out the gates if you're looking to bet in this fight you got to take a serious look at emron there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to bet on emron i'll give those reasons to you but i'm thinking just from a betting perspective i'm most likely gonna go dog or pass this fight josh o'connor more than likely wins the fight it's got some good wrestling but man at minus 285 minus 300 for a guy who's only got one professional fight i will give it to you though josh o'connor does have a handful of amateur bouts which will go over o'connor is a bit of a shorter stature guy Emron's listed at five foot eight o'connor's probably around five seven based upon watching film i think josh o'connor has the shorter arms so reach advantage and height advantage will be with emron o'connor trains out of cf24 and emron trains out of frontline muay thai as for the public votes on tapology o'connor is a gigantic favorite and 95 percent of the votes coming in for o'connor only five percent for the afghani fighter i get it and i imagine those votes are coming in probably because he is the hometown kid he'll be fighting in wales in front of his people the crowd will be going even though it's going to be a prelim fight i feel like he has the tools to win but once again, that money line is quite scary. Now, looking at the background of these two fighters, Josh O'Connor went 7-0 as an amateur. Now, you do like that. So only one pro fight, but does have seven fights as an amateur. He made his pro debut earlier this year. His last opponent was against Mickey Miller. That was the guy we're talking about. That was a round one TKO win. The opponent had a record of 4-9. So keep that in perspective. Mickey Miller was not necessarily a guy coming in to challenge Josh O'Connor. It was just to get Josh O'Connor his first pro fight, allow him to get a win. Ibrahim Hassan, he fought him in 2021 as an amateur, won the fight by split decision. I bring it up because split decision, that caught my eye. And number two, when you go back and watch the fight, the announcers who don't seem to be biased either way, they thought that Ibrahim Hassan had won the fight. A matter of fact, there was the idea that they thought he won all three rounds. Mind you, it goes to split decision, and I believe one judge had a 30-27 with Josh O'Connor winning all three rounds. Amazing how you could have adults right there cage side watching the same fight and sometimes completely different thought process. The fight was very close. I do believe it could have gone either way. Then we also watched Jesse Oliver 
That fight was 2019. He won the fight via round two rear naked choke. Oliver is three and three as an amateur, and that is his total record. Nice win. Looks good on paper, but uh, the guy's not much competition. I will say this. If you watch it on film, he suplexes this guy like three times in the first round alone. So he picks him up. He ragdolls him, does a nice job with wrestling. And that would, again, if you like Josh O'Connor, if you've done some studying on film, you've done your own research, that's probably where you're leading towards. It's O'Connor will drag him to the ground. If you've watched some film on Emron, doesn't do the best on his back and of course when you're fully mounted you don't do very well at all we'll talk more about that but i imagine if this fight gets to the ground josh o'connor is going to have that edge on the ground as, as a wrestler and be able to keep top control now what do i like about the young wrestler here mr o'connor well number one he's fighting in front of his home crowd you're going to get that home crowd like nudge people are going to be cheering for you mom and dad your friends not to mention the judges are hearing it every time you land a blow or throw a big blow we're going to take down they're going to be cheering he's a very active fighter this will be his second fight this year and he fought twice last year as well so four fights over the last two years he's got pretty good footwork he's a smaller guy he shuffles to the left and right he'll circle his opponent doesn't mind working off of his back foot if he's circling and backing up and you come straight at him as the opponent and you're not paying attention he'll drop levels does that really well now what are my concerns of his his bjj defense bad that's where I think he's probably got to do the most improving. That and probably his stand-up striking. When I watched some of the prior fights, like the fight against Ibrahim Hassan, Ibrahim Hassan gets somewhat close to a few submissions in that fight. And you see where repetitively Josh O'Connor is putting his neck, his arms into situations where, you know, he could do better, be a little bit safer. He also works off of his back foot a lot on the feet. And I mentioned before, he circles good footwork, and that's okay. Except if someone's coming at you with a lot of pressure and they force you to stand up and they block those takedowns, now you have yourself a problem where now it doesn't look as good in the scorecards, you're backing up a lot, someone's going to squash you against the fence. In this fight, I don't imagine that dynamic happening because Emron's a little bit taller, so Connor will have the leverage, will be the shorter fight. It'll be easier for him to get his head under the chin, per se, of Emron. But I'm just mentioning it. He does fight a lot off the back foot. If it comes down to a close fight, judges have to figure out which way to go. They might go with the guy who's leading the dance, and he doesn't fight that way. He tends to back up, like I said, and fight off the back foot. Now, as for Emron Zakezada, who's from Afghanistan, now we in Norway, no amateur record. He went professional in 2013. He's fought in very small promotions, promotions I've never heard of before, and only has a few pro fights. Now, looking back at his recent fights, he fought Paula Vista, 2019, had a round one KO win. Vista is 4-8 overall and hasn't won a fight in six years. Kind of, again, putting that in perspective. He fought Mamadoulou, Alexander Mamadoulou Alexander, a Russian fighter, 2017. He lost the fight. There's no details on tapology as to how he lost the fight. If you go back and watch it, it was a decision loss. I cannot believe he got through that fight. This Mamadoulou character, Alexander, he has a 2-0 record on tapology. His last fight was 2017. He looked pretty good on film. So maybe, I don't know, went, tried a different career path. Uh, God forbid something happened to him and he couldn't fight anymore. But the guy was 2-0, looked pretty good, and he destroyed Emron in this fight. Emron somehow gets through round one. The referee was, like, looking at the action. Emron's on his back, taking tons of hammer fists. I just thought right away, I've seen so many fights recently that have been stopped for so much less. On one side, I'm like, let it go. That's great. A referee letting the fight go. Then on the other side, I'm thinking, probably should stop it. He took a ton of damage in round one, but gets through it gets on his feet, gets through the rest of the entire fight somehow. I can't believe he did that. So he showed a lot of heart there, durability, getting through a fight of that magnitude. At the same time, he shows he cannot get up. If he's on his back, you got a guy like a Russian grappler on top of him. He had no answers for that, couldn't get back up. Then he also fought a guy named Yash Kumar. Here's the second of his two professional victories. Yash Kumar, 2013, 
Round one, rear naked choke win. We look at the topology of our boy here, Emron. His first pro fight, 2013, nine years ago. Next fight was four years later, 2017, against Mamadoula Alexander. Gets his ass just completely beat up. Then takes another two-year break. Comes back and fights Paulo Vista, 2019, his last fight. And then now, here he comes three years later. It seems to me like the perfect opponent for a young guy like Josh O'Connor, who's trying to get his record padded. And this probably was a fight that was organized, and the hand-picking was done by the O'Connor side. He's, you know, the local guy. Why not bring a guy who's fought three fights in the last nine years and has fought his last fight three years ago, not good at grappling, not good at takedown defense. Those things sort of add up. That's why, you know, if you're looking at it from those perspectives, Josh O'Connor clearly should be the favorite. Should he be this much of a favorite? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So looking back at the record again of Emron having the wins over Paulo Vista, who's 4-8, and eight, and the wins over 0-4 Yash Kumar, who never fought again after 2013, these are just not quality opponents. What do I like about Emron, the Afghani fighter? He does have some finishing ability. Both of his career wins were by finish. Lower level opponents, yes, but still he finished them. He's got average grappling skills. At moments, you see him trying for a guillotine, looking to get a Kimura, using defensive methods of trying to get submissions to get back up. You like all that. You don't like him working from his back, though. If I'm coaching him, I'm telling him, listen, stop going for that shit off your back. Let's work our way back to our feet. You're not that good. You're not Paul Craig. Now, what are my weaknesses or concerns for him? Three-year layoff. Hasn't fought since 2019. We mentioned it before. That is just not the recipe for success. I don't like it. He could come in here with a ton of ring rush. I do suspect, again, he's the one being handpicked by the other camp to come in here and fight him. His two wins are against very low-level opponents. We talked about it. He's displayed very poor takedown defense in prior fights. And when you get him down, he cannot get back up. In conclusion, I see Josh O'Connor wrestling his way to a three-round points victory, 30-27. Could he get a rear naked choke finish? Yes, his submission ability is okay. But I saw this guy, Zakizada, take a beating on the ground against a pretty good wrestler. He's shown some durability. Again, I like Josh O'Connor in front of the home crowd winning the fight by decision. At minus 300, you're never going to catch me betting on a newcomer like this in this situation. No way. And I'm a little bit queasy about even parlaying it. I'm going to look closely when the prop bets come out. If there's a little bit of plus money, more than I'm thinking, on the finish by Josh Connor, like by submission, like a rear naked choke finish would be what I'm thinking. I might take a look at that otherwise i don't have much interest in a fight where you got such a big favorite for a guy that's unknown what i might do is i'll put a degenerate parlay out there where i'll have o'connor in it and he probably wins the fight damn i just wish the the value was there but it's just not so i'm gonna probably pass from most betting angles in this fight i'll have some action something small on the side good luck with this fight that's your breakdown guys And we're up to the main card. It's going to open up with a semifinal match at 170 pounds between Carlos Leal Miranda, just known as Carlos Leal on some betting platforms and also on Tapology. But Carlos Leal Miranda, I believe is his full name. He goes by the Lion, going up against Sadabu C from Sweden. He goes by the Swedish Denzel Washington. That's quite a catchy nickname. So Sadabu C is 11-6-2 overall, 3-1-1 his last five fights. The odds right now currently have these guys at just about a pick em. Yeah, that's right. You got minus 120 for Leal, plus 100 for Sadabu C. It's been moving around that, so you expect it probably closes around that by the time the fight opens up on a Saturday. I like Carlos Leal. I'll get out the way right away. I think it's going to be a close fight. Sadabu C has a tendency of keeping things close, and even just when you think he's going to pull away on someone, he makes it close and vice versa. He keeps himself in fights by having decent grappling, good range on the distance part of the fight. Like at range, he's always got an advantage. A very long fighter, if you've ever seen him fight before. Very dark-skinned guy. Good-looking guy, but very dark-skinned. We'll talk more about him in his fighter profile. But nonetheless, just for the short breakdown here, I do like Carlos Leo at minus 120. We'd be betting him straight up. 
not sure we're going to want to be parlaying him. Looking at Carlos Leal in detail first, um, actually, before we get to that, let's go back over to their profile. So, Carlos Leal, 17-3 overall, 5 in his last 5 fights. He's out of Piranha, Brazil, 28 years old, 5'11 in height with a 72-inch reach, and he trains out of Thai, Brazil. As for the Swedish fighter, Swedish fighter, excuse me, Sadabu C, 11-6-2 overall, 3-1-1 his last 5 fights. Again, out of Stockholm, Sweden, 35 years old. So about seven years older. That is notable. Six foot three. So there's the height advantage. About four to five inches height advantage there for Sadabusi with an 80-inch reach, about eight inches in reach for the Swedish fighter. And he's out of Wausau kickboxing. As for the public votes on topology, Leal's coming in as a favorite, getting 82% of the votes, only 18% for Sadabusi. Now, that really surprises me. Sadabusi is the kind of guy where I can't say it enough. He's going to make you earn your money. I do think Leal wins the fight. Pace and pressure should win the day. But if you've watched Leo fight in his last few fights, he had some cardio moments. And if during those cardio moments, Sadabusi opens up, lands some kicks, gets something going from range, you know, judges are funny what they want to reward. And nowadays, they're not rewarding control time. So if Sadabusi gets tired, he's laying and praying and not doing much, it can backfire. And I want to say again, <clears throat> excuse me, but Sadabusi, he's the kind of fighter where he tends to make things very close. Now, looking at Carlos Miranda Leal, or Leal Miranda, from Brazil, he fought his first pro fight in 2012, so been a pro for about 10 years. Now, he fought predominantly in the regional promotion down in Brazil. He's currently on a six-fight winning streak between the PFL, Bellator, and LFA. He most recent fights. Okay, Ray Cooper. Now, that was a big win for him. Ray Cooper III, that was earlier this year. He won by decision. You expect these two guys would probably finish each other. It went to a full decision. I do want to say a few things about Ray Cooper. I like Ray Cooper. Very good wrestling background. Former, I think, high school state champion, at least high school state qualifier. He looked terrible in a fight. He came in overweight. His cardio didn't look good. Some people speculate he had an injury. It just was not the best version of Ray Cooper. Now, Carl still took advantage of that. Took the best shots possible from Ray Cooper because Ray Cooper was swinging hard at times and did connect with some punches, but Carl Steele showed a good chin. Now, Leal was a plus 320 underdog in that spot and pulls out a win. So that was quite a big win for him. Kind of puts his name on the map of the PFL. He was also a late replacement in that fight. I mean, all the stars lined up for him in that fight, and that was sort of his arrival, you know, to, to major mixed martial arts. Now, right away in that fight, you could tell that Carlos Leal was able to match the wrestling dynamic of Ray Cooper. I want to mention that because, again, Ray Cooper, former wrestling background, high school wrestling, you know, champion, he's got pretty good wrestling. In that match, you saw that Carlos Leal could basically hold his own. Chris Brown, 2022, he fought him also last year. Split decision win. And Chris Brown is 8-4 overall. Not the most impressive win for Carlos Leal, but he's winning who's ever in front of him. He also beat Corey Coop, or Coupe, 2022. Wow, three fights already this year. He won via round one TKO. This was not even a fight. He jumped all over this guy, Corey Coupe. The fight lasts, you know, not even, what, a few minutes. And you see what he does to a lower-level opponent. He dominates them. So I'll give him that. He's not like a lower-level guy. He's definitely above average to average. How good is he? We're going to find out through these playoffs. The win over Ray Cooper, though, that's the one that's kind of hard to measure because you know Ray Cooper's name. He's a household name. But how good is Ray Cooper now, and how good was he in that fight when he came in overweight? Now, one of the things I like about Carlos Leal Miranda's game, he hasn't lost a fight in eight years. Yeah, he hasn't lost a fight in almost a decade. 2014 was the last time he lost a fight, and that was by decision. Very durable. He's never been finished before. He has a very strong wrestling foundation. My only question mark there, or my only asterisk is, does he function well late round two, round three? Is his cardio up to speed to maintain that wrestling approach? But if he gets those underhooks and gets a body lock, he'll drag your ass to the ground. He fights out of both stances. I think predominantly he's a left-handed fighter. That's what I see from on film. But he'll switch stances, which is always a plus. It gives your fighter that you're going against something else to think about. 
He likes to pepper with the right hand. So if he's in that left hand stance, the southpaw stance, the right hand lead, he'll pepper the jab. It's pretty decent, not much behind it, but at least keeps his opponent busy. And of course, we mentioned a few minutes ago that he was a late replacement in that last fight against Ray Cooper. So we know he can come in late notice, make weight, and go out there and actually, you know, hold his own. Now, what are my concerns for him? The first thing is strength of schedule. Prior to the Ray Cooper fight, that was my big question mark about him, was who has he really beaten? It seems to be convenient guys in the PFL, lower level opponents in general, and then he goes up against Ray Cooper. There's been some people accusing Jamal Hill of this. Jamal Hill just finished Diago Santos in the main event on Saturday night, and people are suggesting, oh, it's a washed up Diago Santos. And I, I get where that's coming from. It's still Diago Santos. It's still a quality win. But I get where it's coming from. In this case, I'm suggesting the same thing. It is Ray Cooper, but what version of Ray Cooper was it? You know, it wasn't the best version of Ray Cooper. So other than that one win, if you take that out, he just hasn't fought many good competition. We just don't know what he's going to be up like against somebody who's uh, who's better, who's more of a higher level fighter. He did show moments of fatigue. Now, you got to look close for this because if you look at the topology, it doesn't tell you the story. He's winning fights by decision. He beat Ray Cooper by decision. I'm talking about... When he lays it on Ray Cooper and you hear the announcers saying, oh, they should stop the fight. It's almost over. He he does throw everything but the kitchen stick at Ray Cooper. You can't blame him. He gets a little bit gassed. You see what he goes through. Now, he doesn't get completely gassed to the point where he loses the fight, but he gets pieced up at some point. So I'm worrying about cardio, cardio management, fighter IQ, all of it. There's question marks there. Let's talk about the Swedish fighter, Sadabusi, the Swedish Denzel Washington. He grew up in a big family with six brothers and sisters. He played soccer competitively growing up. He began mixed martial arts training at the age of 16 years old. He originally started out with kickboxing and taekwondo. He went to the European Championships at the age of 19, and that was in taekwondo, I believe. As an early teenager, he started to have vision problems, and this is scary. I read about this. He gets glasses, and that doesn't really do it. Then he has multiple surgeries, like serious surgeries to try to fix and repair his vision because it's, it's basically losing his vision, going blind. Over the course of the years, He's lost like depth perception. He's had moments of blindness. He's had bouts where he couldn't come out the locker room for a fight because it was so bad where like the lights and everything. I don't know the full story on this. It seems to me to be like one of the worst injuries you could have as a combat sports fighter is that your eyes are very sensitive. He is a PFL veteran. He's been with the PFL now for four years. He has a PFL record for the fastest finish in PFL welterweight history with a 17 second knockout over David Michaud in 2019. So the guy's been around the PFL. He knows his shit. Now, his recent opponents. He fought Rory McDonald this year, win by decision, as a plus 230 underdog. It was a really close fight. I remember it vividly because I had money on Rory McDonald, and it did not go my way. I can argue up and down that Rory won the fight, and it was close, whatever else. It was close. It was damn close. And in those close fights, you're leaving it to the judges. It can go either way. In this case, Sadabusi was doing just enough to keep it close. So I can't blame the judges for giving the fight to Sadabusi. I blame more of why Rory McDonald didn't do more to separate himself from the fight. And he just didn't. But that's a quality win. Maybe the biggest win of Sadabusi's career. Yeah, probably. His prior fight, he fought Nikolai Alexkin. That was a fight where it was a rematch. Because they fought last year. There was an eye poke. Something happened. They couldn't finish the fight. They fought again this year. This time around, he wins the fight by split decision. And you see, that's the theme here with Sadabusi. He's got he's a lot like Alex Martinez. And then he also fought Magomed Magomed Karimov last year, 2021, had a decision loss. That was a semifinal matchup in last year's PFL playoffs. He got taken down to the ground repeatedly. He got ragdolled. The fact that it went to decision 
I give him some credit because Magomed, Magomed Karimov is pretty good with submissions. He was attacking the entire time. That's the path to beating Sadabusi, and that's why Carlos Leal Miranda will have a real opportunity to win the fight. All right, now what's the like about Sadabusi? Excellent length. He's always the taller, longer fighter. He'll be the taller, longer fighter in this matchup, and he'll use that to his advantage. His kicking game is probably his best weapon. He has excellent footwork, and he uses that to stay away from his opponent's hard shots. He does a good job of not staying in the pocket very long. He'll mix it up with his opponent, then he'll get back out of range and stay safe. Now, what are my concerns for him? Well, number one, he's not a finisher, so he lacks punching power. That tall, long frame, it doesn't have much power behind it, including his kicks, so don't expect him to get a finish. He most likely gets a win by decision, if he were to win. He also could be taken down repeatedly. Now, again, it depends upon the opponent. It depends upon what round. If you're a Carlos Leal Miranda supporter here, and you like Carlos Leal to win the fight, he needs to bring the fight to the ground in the first two rounds. Because by round three, if his cardio's not up to speed and he can't now wrestle this big Swedish fighter, he may lose that round. He's going to need round one and two in the books. In conclusion, I like Carlos Leal to win the fight by decision. I think he could hurt Sai at some point, but I don't think I'm finishing Sai. Sai is very durable. Expect Sai to the Swedish fighter, to do everything possible, like usual, to make the fight nice and close and yucky, go to the scorecards. But I think even on the scorecards, Carlos Leal Miranda will have enough control time. The wrestling will be his dynamic, will be the separating component between these two fighters. And he gets to win here by decision and moves on in the playoffs. That's your breakdown, guys. <laughs>up the car we have another heavyweight battle 265 pounds between the russian fighter dennis golsov who goes by the russian bogatar versus the brazilian matthias scheffel who goes by bufa bufa 16 and 8 overall three and two in his last five fights a big dog in this matchup at plus 225 to plus 240 that surprises me if you've watched matthias shuffle recently he's had some pretty good wins and you know, heavyweights it's, it's volatile right i'm going to choose dennis Golsov to win i'll get that out of the way right now but i think matthias shuffle is clearly a live dog in this spot he's based out of brazil 29 years old six foot two in height with a 75 inch reach and he trains out of cm system as for the russian dennis Golsov, he's 29 and 7 a little more experience for one of his last five fights favorite here at minus 325 again i don't like that spot a little bit too chalky for my liking he's based out of st petersburg russia 32 years old, six foot height with a 78 inch reach. So height and reach goes to the side of Dennis Golsov. He trains out of Sambo Petier and Ermarak. Now, if you know about the fighting style of Dennis Golsov, he is Russian, has some striking ability. He really butters his bread on the ground. That's his path to a safe victory. And in a heavyweight bout where you're going to be going back and forth, big punching power on both sides, the safest path to victory for Dennis Golsov is to wrap up Matthias Shuffle, drag him to the ground, and win using that method. Now, looking at the public votes and topology, Golsov is the big favorite. 95% of the votes here, only 5% coming in for Shuffle. I guess it makes sense, you know, but Shuffle punches hard. He is a heavyweight. He has knockout power. One decision against Bruno Capeloso. Who could have thought those guys would have gone to a full decision? And I believe that in this fight, Matthias Shuffle is the replacement, right? He's the replacement for Bruno Capeloso because Capeloso, I believe something happened. He was injured and had to tap out of the playoffs. So Matthias Shuffle steps in, and I think he's a live dog. I can't say it enough. Now, looking at the profile of these two fighters, for Dennis Golsov, he was born in Russia. He went professional in 2010, so been a professional now for about 12 years. No amateur record. He fought M1 Global ACB prior to the PFL. He's got a 7-2 record in the PFL. Wow, nine total fights in the PFL. So the guy is a PFL veteran. His last fight, just recently, against Maurice Green, he mopped the floor at Maurice Green. He picked him up, slammed him down, put on display his wrestling skills. My only critique of him in that fight is Maurice Green was late notice, didn't really look very good, and Golsov couldn't get a finish there. So that's the one thing I would have liked to see him do is get a finish in that fight. He fought Gody Goodell this year as well during the regular season. Round one TKO win. Goodell is 8-6 overall and, quite frankly, had no business in the octagon with Golsov. And that's the big concern here for Dennis Golsov as well. These are his two fights in regular season, and they weren't good opponents. You know, sometimes when you're fighting such bad competition, it does impact you as a fighter, meaning that, like, 
it basically brings your game down, right? You're not being tested. You're not being forced to improve. Now, part of that, he fought on to Delisha last year in the playoffs, lost by decision. Delisha went on to lose in the finals versus Kapaloza. He also fought Alexander Volkov. Yes, Alexander Volkov, the UFC heavyweight. Years ago, about 10 years ago, 2011, he lost via round two TKO, and that was back in M1 Challenge 25. Now, what do I like about this fighting style of Dennis Golsov? He's an excellent grappler, especially for a heavyweight. He can grapple, he can wrestle, and if he gets you down, has that big body on top of you, it's hard to get out from under that. He's fought very good competition as well. We mentioned some of the names before, even UFC-level competition. Granted, it was a long time ago, but still UFC-caliber fighters. And last but not least, this will be his 37th MMA fight. The guy has a ton of mixed martial arts experience. A lot more than his opponent, Mathias Shuffle. Not that Mathias Shuffle is a rookie by any means, but still has the experience advantage in this matchup. And what are my concerns for Golsov? He hasn't been the most durable at times, but he's had some moments there where he has not been durable. For example, of his seven losses, he was finished in six of those. That would suggest there's definitely some durability issues, right? He's also come up short against better competition. So for example, against Volkov, Delizia, Ali Izyev, he didn't win those fights. Now against average competition or below average guys like Maurice Green or late replacements, he gets the job done. Now as for the Brazilian Mathias Shuffle, let's talk about him. From Brazil, fighting out of Piranha, Brazil, he fights out of an orthodox stance, no amateur experience, went professional in 2012, so also been a pro for about a decade. He fought Azamat, that was last year, round one KO loss on Dana White Contender Series. He got clipped with a basic overhand right in round one. He was a plus 380 underdog and he looked terrible. And I want everyone to remember this. He had a moment just last year where he was definitely chinny, where no one was going to back him. Has he all of a sudden figured it out? Has he made the serious improvements? Is he just getting lucky? The fight with Bruno Capeloza, he took some hits. They traded. It went the full distance. So I'm going to caution people who are thinking, oh, he's, he's figured it out. He's worth a dog money. Be careful with that. I do think he's a live dog, but it's just one fight. So we can't overreact. Now, what's the like about Matthias Shuffle? Excellent size for this division. He's a natural heavyweight, has a natural heavyweight frame. Has good finishing ability, as do most natural heavyweights. He's got punching power. A very solid lower leg kick. Very good footwork for a big guy. Now, what are my concerns for Shuffle? Number one, durability. Five of his seven losses have been by TKO within the first two rounds. And if you tape study some of those knockouts, you see he's getting <laughs> cracked. It's sometimes one punch early in the fight. He still has a clean face, no blood or nothing. And he's going down. And then, of course, we talked about the competition level. Has not faced the best of competition. In conclusion, I like Goldsoft. I think he gets himself a boring decision on the ground. That's my one critique of him. He needs that Data White Contender Series speech about finishing his opponent, but it'll work. It'll get him to the finals. And quite frankly, there's a lot at stake. $1 million. Do you want to go out there and risk it and start training with another heavyweight? I don't think so. If Matthias Shuffle can somehow force the fight on the feet or Goldsoft takes the bait and tries to fight in the feet, Shuffle's got an opportunity. But we get to second round and you see round one goes the way that we're thinking where Goldsoft gets some grappling time, control time, back control. If that happens in round one, you can pretty much expect smooth sailing for round two and three. I think at some point you'll see Matthias Shuffle just slow down. The card will become a factor. Long story short, we like Goldsoft. Don't love the money line. I would parlay it at minus 300 range. Props that I would consider, Dennis Golsoff by decision or Matthias Shuffle by TKO. That's your breakdown, boys and girls. Go look at this fight. The co-main event for PFL number eight is going to be another heavyweight clash between Ante Delizia, who goes by Walking Trouble, and Renan Ferreira, who goes by La Problema. So we got two guys who are like, you know, troublemakers and two nasty heavyweights with a lot of finishing power. I think someone gets starts in this fight. I'll tell you that. The prop that I like the most of the fight, not going to decision. As for Renan Ferreira, who's built like a prototypical NFL tight end, he's 9-3 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. 
it's a pick and price right now. You got minus 105, minus 125, depending on what book. 32 years old, six foot eight in height. Wow, six foot eight, very tall. Like I said before, prototypical NFL tight end with an 85 inch reach. So compared to Ante Delegia, who's six foot five with a 79 inch reach, the height and reach will definitely be on the side of Renan Ferreira, who trains at a very good gym, Team Noguera. As for Ante Delegia, he's 21 and five overall, much more experienced, very good record. 4-1 his last five fights out of Croatia, 32 years old, out of Gladiator, Croatia. I'll look at the numbers on Tapology. Delicia is the one getting the most votes, 67% to be exact, 33% coming in for Ferreira. A little surprise, Ferreira lost this last fight, huge upset. Ferreira has holes in his game. You have to acknowledge that there are some parts of his game that are available to attack. One thing would be dragging him to the later part of the fight. He's a big guy. It's a huge frame. Yes, he's very athletic. He's built very well. Just the laws of physics will tell you it takes a lot of energy to move that body. So he came up short against Clinton Abreu. That was back in June. He was a minus 450 favorite. Well, Ante Delizia, if you don't know, is a pretty damn good grappler. And that becomes his path to making this a successful fight. I do want to acknowledge, even though I'm choosing Ante Delizia to win the fight, I don't have a ton of confidence. The price is right. Minus 105. Pick and price. This fight can go either way. If Delegia gets it into round two, round three, drags Ferreira to the ground a few times, gets some grappling control, nothing sexy, he gets the win. Ferreira just needs to land one punch, and that goes for anyone he fights against. Remember, this is an 85 in reach. <laughs> he could punch me from next week. This guy's got tons of reach, lots of power, again, built like a very high-level athlete. You see the potential there. Only 11 fights at 32 years old, making improvements. But the kryptonite is dragging him to the ground. Once you get that big frame to the ground, he's on his back, we got problems. Ferreira is an amazing athlete. I wouldn't be surprised to see him winning first round, 10 seconds, knockout. But Delizia, he's kind of found his rhythm. Wins against Shelton Graves, Matthias Shuffle in his last two fights. We just talked about Shuffle. He knocked out Shuffle early round two. Delizia has punching power. His last loss was by decision to Bruno Capeloza, and that was in the PFL 2021 finals last year. So he just missed the $1 million last year by decision. Otherwise beat Dennis Golseth, Chandler Cole, this is the year for Delizia. If he plays the perfect game plan, if he stays off of his feet with this guy, doesn't allow Renan Ferrer to punch him at range, especially early in the fight, he gets an easy win here. As for the money line, I got to play because I want some action here. I want to put something small in Delizia, maybe a half unit, 25 bucks. The best prop to consider when it comes out will be the fight not going to decision. I think one of these two guys finds the power button. That's the breakdown, guys. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section. Who do you guys have here to win and how? And we are up to the main event for PFL number eight, the semifinals of their playoffs. 170 pounders, Rory the Red King McDonald, who hails from Canada, and Magomed Umulatov, the prince who hails from Russia. Umulatov is 12 and 0. Yeah, very impressive undefeated Russian fighter. It feels like there's so many of these guys, right? So many of these young Russians with either undefeated records or 14 and 1, 15 and 1. They're just like falling off the trees over there. So as for Umulatov, we don't have an age on him, which is kind of surprising. I thought I had an age on him in prior fights. I'm going to guesstimate 30 years old, six foot one in height with a 75 inch reach. So he'll have the one inch height advantage and about a one inch reach disadvantage to his opponent, Rory McDonald. And Mr. Magomed Umulatov trains out of Eagles MMA. As for Rory McDonald, the Red King, 23, nine and one overall, two and three in his last five fights. A bit of a rough stretch. He is an underdog in this matchup. Currently, we're sitting at minus 260 for Umulatov and you can get McDonald on the other side at plus 200. Man, how quickly times have changed. Rory McDonald is a very good fighter, but you lose a few fights, get a few bad close decision calls. Next thing you know, you're plus 220 <laughs> and you're facing a good Russian. McDonald is out of Deerfield Beach, Florida, 33 years old, 
Man, you know, he's only 33 years old. It also feels like he's older. Just weird. He's been around for a while. That's what it is. He's out of Killcliff FC, which used to be Sanford MMA. He also does some trading out of TriStar Gym. As for the votes on Tapology, Umla Toff is getting 86% of the votes. He's only 14% coming in from McDonald. I have to agree. You've got an undefeated Russian who's, you know, not just a Russian wrestler. He's got that in his pocket. They all do. But he's just very well balanced. He's actually a really good striker. Fights in the feet. Coming off of wins against Jirai Hussein Al-Silawai. A guy who was a little overhyped, by the way, but that was back in July, just last month. Round one, knockout, right hook. Part of that beat Leandro Silva by decision. That was last year in August. He's had a nice streak. The guy hasn't lost a fight since 2017 where he lost as an amateur, and that was by decision. A perfect pro record. Lots of finishes, mostly by KO. He's more of a striker. I think he wins here. My concern for Rory McDonald is when you watch a fighter like him who's showing you you know, the wheels are starting to come off. Not that he's a terrible fighter. He belongs in the PFL. He's had a good run. He has more years left in the tank. I, all that, yeah. But the sense of urgency, the desire to get into a bloodbath, I think he's turned himself into a very technical fighter who wants to win via points. And look, you can't blame people. You heard Rose Namajunas recently give a whole spiel on her interview with Errol Hawani, how she talked about, you know, people always want blood, blood, you know, and glory for me. Uh, why can't I go out there and win a fight and have my face stay clean? It makes perfect sense to, to the layman's person. It does. Not to hardcore mixed martial arts fans. Not to the people chugging beer in the front row of a mixed martial arts event. They're coming to see people go at it. For Rory McDonald, he's turned into a bit of a safe fighter. And that's not going to help you when you get into these close fights. Fights that he's been losing. Matter of fact, looking at his tapology, pulling up some of his recent fights. He's coming off a loss against Sadabusi by decision. A fight where I had picked him to win. And Sadabusi is the perfect problem for him a guy who also keeps it close who strikes at range does just enough you know Roy McDonald doesn't have that dog in him anymore his prior fight Brett Cooper won that fight not Ray Cooper the third Brett Cooper no relationship he won that fight via rear naked choke in round one Brett Cooper you know, kind of a journeyman prior fight Ray Cooper the third lost by decision Glayson Tibau lost that fight by split decision I thought he won that fight so one in three in his last four fights had a win against Cur Curtis Belender 2021 Riddick could choke round one. He could still choke somebody and then lost by decision to Douglas Lima. So if you take Rory McDonald to decision, you push the pace, you get in his face, a little facial damage, put his ass up against the fence. That's your path to victory. Well, he's fighting a guy who can do all those things. There were some rumors that the people who win these matches, depends on how they win or lose, they could be out off the roster next year. But here's the thing. Those are for the prelim, post-limb guys. I don't think if you're in the playoffs, you're at risk of losing a roster spot for next year. I have to imagine anyone who's in the playoffs, win or lose, you're getting a provincial, you know, somehow like you have a roster spot for next year, put it that like grandfathered in. That's, that's what I would say. The long and short of it is, I like Magomed Umlatov. I like him by decision because Rory is durable. If you're going to tell me Rory has a chance, it's going to have to be by submission, right? And again, just imagine that him submitting a Russian guy who's got a ton of talent, who could strike on the feet, very athletic. I like Magomed Umlatov for Rory McDonald, going to be a tough end to the PFL 2022 season. For Magomed, he will move on to the finals. At minus 260, I will parlay it with a hint of pretty good amount of confidence. Yes. I'm not going to play it straight up. Minus 260 is just too rich for my liking to play it straight up, but I'll definitely parlay it. That's our breakdown, boys and girls. Thank you for stopping by. Please like and subscribe and let's move on. All right, for the post-limb bouts, I am not going to do a deep dive just due to time constraints. Haven't had the time to do the full breakdown of these post-limbary fights, which involve a lot of guys who have big question marks anyway. They're brand new to the scene. So we'll go one at a time here for the post-limb fights, talking about the highlights of each opponent, give me the pick that we have to win. But again, full disclosure, did not do a lot of research and probably will not have much invested 
the first fight it's going to be Mokhtar Binkasi, who goes by Le Kabaya, which I don't know what that means. Language is outside of my wheelhouse, versus Francisco Nuzzi, who goes by Berserker. Nuzzi versus Binkasi sounds like it's like a Italian or French fashion show competition. Binkasi, who's 20 and 7 overall, a lot of experience. Five and only his last five fights. A slight dog here, though, at plus 115, plus 120. Out of France, from Marseille, France. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. 29 years old. Five foot seven in height. We don't have a reach number on him. He trains out of Sausset Fight Team. As for Mr. Nuzi, who goes by Berserker, he's 9 and 1 overall. Five and only his last five fights. A slight favor here at minus 140, based out of Italy. 25 years old in 11 months. A little bit younger. So about to be 26. Three years younger to be more specific. Five foot three in height, though. Four inches shorter according to Tapology, than his opponent. So that will play a part. He trains out of Wolf Temple. Now look at the numbers on Tapology. Binkasi is getting 66% of the votes, 34% of the votes coming in for Nuzi. Here's my thinking. The younger fighter who's nine and one has fought okay competition. Nothing that'll strike you as high level promotions. You're talking about Brave CF is the highest level he's fought at. Decent, not the worst promotion. He went one and on that promotion. Hasn't fought in anything much more than that. He went one and, three, one and two, sorry, as an amateur. As for Mokhtar Binkasi, no amateur career on file, but tons of experience. Fought an M1 challenge, has wins at M1 challenge. If we're talking about strength of schedule, I got to give the edge to Mokhtar Binkasi. You know, Eagles fighting championships, WWFC, multiple fights in EFC, multiple fights in M1. So the guy's been, been against good competition, even fought in Cage Warriors. I, I think from that standpoint, you got to look at the veteran and say he probably has the edge here. Now, if you're looking at it from the politics standpoint, Newsy is 9-1. and one, He's younger. A becoming prospect. Flip side, Benkasi's only 29 years old. So I'm going to go with the public here. I think Mokhtar Benkasi has a good chance to win the fight. I like that he's a little bit bigger. He also probably has the man strength advantage. So I'm going to take a stab at Mokhtar Benkasi to win the fight as a slight dog. And I'm going to choose by decision. I imagine these guys weighing 135 pounds. We have limited striking power. You look at their topology. You're seeing some finishes, but there's always that questionable level of who they're fighting against. So I'm going decision here. Mokhtar Benkasi. Let's move on. All right, next fight, the post-limb card is going to be at 155 pounds between Voshko Barok. Oh, my God, that name's going to kill me. He goes by NRP. He's going up against Maxim Radu. Maxim is 9-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Maxim is out of Italy. Once again, you know, I think of fighters from Italy and Paris. I think of food and fashion, not fighting. Anyway, Maxim is from Italy, 31 years old, 5'7 in height, no reach number on him. He trains out of Team Pioripan. As for Mr. Barok, 13-2 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, a favorite here at minus 200. Out of the Republic of Slovakia, 29 years old, 5'11 in height, so about 4 inches in height advantage for Mr. Barorik with a 74.8 inch reach. Very long arm. He trains out of Octagon Fighting Academy. As for the numbers on Tapology, the votes are coming in on the side of Barorik. 87% to be exact, almost 90% of the votes, so 9 out of 10 votes coming in on the side of the Slovakian fighter. Tapology photos lend you to believe that this Mr. Barorik is a badass dude. Has a huge cross on one side of his chest. He basically has a mural. <laughs> across his whole chest there. And his face looks rugged, like he's been through it. Maxim, his profile picture on Tapology looks like he's the kind of guy who would take you on a, a fishing expedition, like in the backwoods of Alabama or something. Nothing wrong with that. He's still got his own rugged appeal to him, but not quite as war-torn as the Slovakian. I'm gonna go with the Slovakian. I'm gonna side with the public. Record-wise, you know, I do like that Maxim is nine and two. He is coming off of a loss, AFL. Triangle choke. Big issue was that was 2018, four years ago. So has he gotten better in four years? Why the long layoff? He does have a win in Bellator. I'm referring to Max, and that is. You do like that. Otherwise, been fighting in the regional scene in Italy and had the AFL loss in round one to Joel Alvarez. Of course, Joel Alvarez is currently in the UFC. 
As for the rough, worn, torn Baboric, who, uh, again, that topology photo, the dude looks like he's been through it. He last fought about a year ago, so he's kind of coming off of a full year layoff, and he's coming off of a loss as well by decision to Ivan Butchinger. He fought twice last year. He had a win against Klasik, round two rear naked choke, and that was in KSW. One fight in KSW, he's one known KSW. So both guys have a little bit of experience, you know, Titan, fight night, cage fighting, fighting on the fringe of high-level promotions. I'm going to go with Baboric. Initially, just basic little numbers on topology. I'm going to side with him. And look, it's hard. It's hard. Even if Maxim was like 12-0 and 0 or something, how can you back a guy who's coming off a four-year layoff? That's just very difficult. I'm not sure what happened there. If you did your own research and you know why he's been out, comment down below. I always welcome comments. If you know something, I'll highlight that comment. Sometimes we get information from random users, information that we don't know. We always appreciate the advice. So yeah, we're going to go with the Slovakian fighter to win this fight. Sitting at minus 200-ish range, maybe a little chalky, put it into a parlay, cross your fingers. But I'm going to go with the Slovakian. That's your breakdown, guys. Let's move. Next up on the post-liminary card, we have a featherweight bout at 145 pounds and maybe one of the most exciting fights on the entire card. Remember, this is being held in the United Kingdom, in Wales. Ben Ellis, who's from Wales, and then Nate Kelly, who's from Ireland. This will be the second to last fight on the entire fight card. Both guys, legit prospects. The PFL, smart move here. Smart move to go out there and find athletes from around the world hosting this event over in, in Wales, looking to get some local fighters. Ben Ellis is 4-1 overall, so obviously 4-1 in his last five fights. A slight favorite here at minus 170. Well, not slight favorite, moving towards now minus 200. He's at minus 190 in some books. Again, he's based out of Wales. That's Ben Ellis. 5'8 height, no reach number on him. He trains out of the Matt Academy. As for Nat Kelly... Nate Kelly, why did I just call him that? Nate Kelly, that is. Five and two overall. Five in his last five fights. So he started his career off 0 and 2. Is that correct? Let me just look this up. Yes. Once again, not how you start, but how you finish. His first two pro fights, round one KO loss, 2017. Second pro fight, round, oh, split decision loss. So his first two fights, 0 and 2, now notched off four, I'm sorry, five straight wins. You like to see that bounce back. He's a dog here at plus 150 in the money line. Again, based out of Ireland, 25 years old, 5'8", high-risk, 71-inch reach, and he's based out of SBG Ireland, of course, the home gym of the notorious, the one and only Conor McGregor, who now has a movie coming out, right? Or he's going to be in a movie called Roadhouse. As for the numbers on Tapology, Ellis is the underdog, according to the public. Kelly's getting 76% of the votes. Here's the thing. I think both guys have a good shot to win the fight. If I was pricing it out on the money line, I'd have him at a pick him. For some reason, Ben Ellis has to favor the money line, but the public's on the side of Kelly. One side's right and one side's wrong. I'm not really sure what to tell you. I'm going to side ever so slightly with Ben Ellis, though. I do agree with the Vegas sports books over the public sentiment on Tapology. I think the guy is... Um, a better athlete. That's just my interpretation of having watched him in prior fights. I didn't do film study for this fight, but I did watch him in prior fights. I do like him. With Nate Kelly, I like the bounce back. The competition has been okay. I mean, he's got a win in Bellator. He had a win in Bellator 275 against Scott Peterson by decision. That was earlier this year. Then had a win in Century Fight Championships. Round one, ground and pound win over Romero Rodriguez, a guy who I don't know. Um, so two fights ready this year. This will be his third fight this year. You do like the fact that Nate Kelly is staying very busy. But I think Ben Ellis got him here. I think Ben Ellis is the has the higher ceiling, right? That's what I'm saying. Ben Ellis is coming off of a win of Cage Warriors. As a matter of fact, that's another thing I like about Ben Ellis. He's fought five total fights as a pro, and he's four and one. All five fights have been in Cage Warriors. Cage Warriors is legit. And you go back to his amateur days, he also fought in Cage Warriors as an amateur, and his amateur record in general, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 
eight and O amateur record for Ben Ellis. Did Nate Kelly have an amateur record? He did, and it was a decent amateur record. He had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten and three amateur record. Both guys had some amateur experience, but once again, Ben Ellis was fighting in cage warriors at the amateur level and had an undefeated record as an amateur. So look, I'm on the side of Ben Ellis. I like him to win. There is some value here. I look forward to watching the fight and the crowd's gonna be into it. How will I bet it? Mm, maybe a small parlay I'll put this into, but straight up money, it's a risky investment with two guys that are very inexperienced and it can go either way. So that's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. And the last fight in the post limb card and which should be the last, very last fight of the night is gonna be a middleweight bout, 185 pounds between Will Flurry, who's from Ireland, and Anthony Salmon, who's from France. Great matchmaking here by the PFL, getting fighters that are from that part of the world, hosting an event in that part of the world. It's a way for them to get like a audition, a free look at some talent that's international and also to tap into some other fan bases. So kudos to you, PFL. Very smart. As for Will Flurry, 10-3 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, a minus 200 favorite in this spot, 33 years old, 6'3 in high weight, 77-inch reach, and he trains out of SBG Ireland. So we have another SBG Ireland fighter on the card. As for Anthony Salmon, who goes by Ars Blanc, 7-0, undefeated fighter. You like to see that? Very impressive. But he is the dog here at plus 165, based out of France, 27 years old, so about six years younger than his opponent. You like to see the youth. He's out of Team Turquoise 59, or Turquoise 59. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. I apologize. As for the votes on Tapology, Flurry is the favorite, getting 76% of the votes compared to 24% coming in for Salmon. I agree. Taking a look at the tapology, some things pop out to you right away about Will Flurry. Number one, three-fight winning streak. You like that. Number two, he fought in UAE Warriors, good promotion, and Bellator. Matter of fact, not just one or two fights in Bellator. He fought about four or five fights in Bellator, picked up several wins, has also had a brief stint in Brave CF. So right there in itself, EFC, BAMMA, these are all good promotions. Had a nice little amateur run, was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven and no amateur career. So that's Will Flurry in a nutshell. As for Anthony Simone, he fought for European Beatdown 7, Hard Fighting Championships, Octagon Fighting Club, Fight Surpass 1. No offense, I'm not trying to make fun of these promotions, but these are promotions that don't compare to Bellator or UAE. So when it comes to this 7-0 record, you got to put that in perspective. He's fighting who? He's fighting guys that are what? The last guy he fought, Kevin Dell. That was his last fight a year ago, September of 2021. Kevin Dell is 3-6-1. And that was in a lower level promotion. So he's fighting guys that are you know, not very talented. Now his last fight, mind you, he was 6-0 fighting a guy of that caliber. Now two fights ago, two fights ago, he was 5-0. He fights a guy named Mahadine Farinu, Farinu, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Three years ago, wins the fight, round one, rear naked choke. This guy, Mahadine Farinu, never fought before. He's 0-1. He never fought again after that. So the 7-0 record for Anthony Salmon is completely a distraction. You look at him as basically being 0-0 with some amateur experience. Will Flurry decide a bear of a man who will hug you, lay on you, having not watched film on these guys, but having heard it from some cappers that I trust and having heard some dialogue about this fight, this may be one of the sneaky value spots on the entire card. Like in terms of a parlay piece, you take Will Flurry at minus 200 into your parlay, he's going to give you some value and he really should win the fight. The 7-0 record is distracting. It's distracting the casual better who doesn't know this record is completely nonsense toys r us record <laughs> so will flurry will win the fight that's your breakdown guys Good look at this fight all right let's wrap up this show by giving you a pick summary of who we like along with some parlay pieces you might want to consider starting at the top we like magomed umulatov in the main event as part of the playoff pitcher to win his fight over rory mcdonald we like ante delizia to win dennis golsov carlos leal moving on to the prelim card we like emran zakizada maga mohammed fakradin chris mixon and simone bajor 
On the post-luminary card, we like Ben Ellis, Baboric, Francesco Nuzzi, and we do like Will Flurry quite a bit. Now, the fighters we like the most, Dennis Golslov at minus 325, Magomed Umulatov at minus 260, Mohamed Fakhradin at minus 170. Moving down to the post-luminary card, Will Flurry at minus 200. Those are the spots we have the most confidence in. If you want to see our full parlay pieces and we're going to bet in this card, track us on betm.tips, also up on Twitter. Don't bet too heavy. It is PFL. We've seen a lot of volatility. Like and subscribe if you haven't done so already, and we'll see you guys soon. Deuces. Thank you